So we're going to take a, a departure from Philippians this week and give t uh, Tim a weekend off. Um, what's, what's a little weird is I spend my life on Zoom conferences, but I've never actually taught into a Zoom camera. So let's see how this goes. It's a little weird not to have an audience. Um, so I can see the number of people that we have on the Zoom is 26. And now that everybody's starting to realize that I'm speaking this week, I expect that number to tick down quickly. <laughs> <I'm> like, ah. <laughs> Um, so I have a, a, few thing, a few things that will seem kind of scattered at first, but I'm going to try to bring it all together. I'm going to be going through a lot of scripture this morning. I want to also, be, uh, before I start teaching, recognize the fact that we have people literally around the world, uh, not only John and Candace Rowe from uh, Costa Rica, but we also have Bob de Groot, our, our beloved Bob from the Netherlands that is uh, dialed in, which is awesome. So hi, Bob. Welcome. Um, so it's it, there's a certain um, tenderness, I think, that we're all kind of feeling the ghosts that can come out of these times of trial that ironically, I think our soul long, longs for in a, in a weird way. Our soul hungers for these times of intimacy with God, like this coronavirus thing is, is stripping a lot of the things away that we've kind of built our lives upon, like some of the, the structures that we have built our lives on uh, in the wrong way. And I think it's, in, in a way, it's kind of a sweet time to be able to reassess and re reprioritize what's going on and what's truly important in our lives. So I, I really encourage you guys to reach out and check on people, you know, speak words of affirmation to them. It's just been such a blessing of late just to see the, the body minister to each other. Uh, needs are arising and needs are being met. And it's, it's just awesome to see as a small church body uh, that people are taking care of each other. So that really ministers to us. So I wanted to just uh, share, let me share my screen here. I was reading through a passage of scripture. It was literally yesterday morning. Let me see, share screen. There we go, where is it? How do we get to there? Hmm. Tim, let's see. I see shared desktop, but how do I share? No, I want to share my my um, PowerPoint. I don't see it on the sharing options. That's weird. The uh, little green button that just says share screen, and then you. Oh, I see that, but I don't. I don't see it as an option. That's kind of weird. I see just shared desktop. Um, sorry, guys. We'll we'll figure this out in a second. So okay. What do you guys see right now? Just like a desktop of a bunch of icons? Sounds like you need technical help. Okay, here we go. It, you guys see this? There we go. <laughs> okay. Yes. But um, if you click slideshow at the bottom, Kirby, it should pull up it pull up everything as a full screen. Yeah, no. I, okay. The bottom right. Up. No, I, I, yeah, I see that. I'm just. Yeah. There you go. Okay, so I was I was reading this yesterday with with Christina, just uh, some devotions that we we're having in bed, and and uh, I'll, I'll just read through it quickly and then explain one of the things that blessed me. It, it was First um, Corinthians sixteen. So Lily Paul's just ending his letter uh, to the church of Corinth, and he says, "You know, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they've been they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints." Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. 
I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And so just you know, rereading it, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. And and that just made me think right away of John and Candace Rowe and their their ministry that they have down in Costa Rica. Because that's what they do. They they have the home. They invite missionaries into their home, uh, pastors, people that basically need a respite, and they bring them in and they minister their souls. And it says to give recognition to such people. And so, uh, you know, I've reached out to them and I and I just let them know that uh, they're really a blessing to people. And I think that all of us can do that. There's so many. There's so many uh, in the body. We all are refreshing each other's souls. And so I just encourage you guys to reach out. And, and I just want to recognize that because it's a, such an important ministry. Um, so I'm going to go back here a second. Stop sharing because I'm going to go to s- several different parts of scripture. But I want, before I put the slide up, I want with the scripture I wanted to kind of talk about. There's a there's a a certain sweetness that I talked about that comes from these times of trial. That um, there's a word uh, like a little word phrase that John Piper wrote in this book, Coronavirus and Christ. This little hundred page book that I read last week, and it the, the term he used for basically what we're going through right now is bitter providence. And I was like, that's it. You know, it's like there's this God is in this situation. He's not surprised by it. God is sovereign over the over the universe. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over the the daily lives of each person on the earth. And yet there's a there's a term that bitter providence. I think that really captures it. It's while it's not pleasant, God will be glorified really despite the circumstances. And so I'm, I'm just praying that we have eyes to see through these things. Um, the way that God sees the world, and it is through his providence that we're going through this. And so uh, the idea of bitter providence was really um, super personal for our family, as we just found out on um, Friday about uh, Robbie Zacharias. Um, There we go. There's a picture of him and Margie. Robbie Zacharias, who are our our families close to the ministry, the ministry, the fact that he's uh, he's dying and uh, he's got terminal cancer and he's just got, left MD Anderson, which is where this picture was taken, to go home with his family, basically to to pass. And it is such a um, it is it's really made my heart cut very tender. It's like wow, we have these people that are in our lives that are so meaningful, so special, and there's a chance uh, unless God mir- miraculously intervenes, uh, he's going to be with the Savior Jesus very very soon. And so uh, when we talk about God's bitter providence, when you read what Robbie's posting about it, he's like, our days are numbered. Thank you. And it basically is just saying, you know, all glory be to Christ. And I was thinking about the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, before what I just read you, which Paul talks about the, the resurrection. And when we think about the fact that if the resurrection isn't true, then Robbie has no hope. Then uh, Joe Melia's dad, who died a week ago, has no hope. Uh, then those of us who are sick, we're all sick and dying. It's just different timelines, right? If there's no resurrection, we have no hope, and we might as well just be physical hedonists and just pursue the things of the flesh because if, uh, because the resur- if the resurrection isn't true, 
then we have no hope and we might as well eat, drink and marry, uh, be married because uh, tomorrow we die. But the fact is that the resurrection is true. And so a guy like Robbie, a guy like any of us who are in Christ, we have this beautiful eternal hope and that makes all the difference in the world. And so, um, but, you know, pray for Robbie as you can, um, because, you know, it seems like the end is near and it's just, he's just been a, a lion of the faith uh, to this generation. So it's really, really blessed us. So the, so I, I'm going to be teaching uh, basically on, as a continuation of what I have been teaching on for the past couple of times I've, I've spoken. And if you were there, um, it, you'll see that it's kind of a continuing theme and these things will, these ideas will all tie together. Um, but I'm going to start out with a teaching from Jesus um, in the gospel of Luke. It's, it's called the parable of the lost coin. Okay. And we're going to quickly share this again. Darn it. It's weird that sometimes it lets me share just the slides and sometimes it doesn't I'll have to work on that next time. Okay. All right. This is Jesus talking. He says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. So I put in italics what I want to focus on. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angel of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So kind of the theme I wanted to talk through, and we're going to continue on in the book of Genesis, but then um, and go into a few different passages of scripture. I want to talk about the fact that there's this unseen realm, the fact that there's the angels of God are rejoicing over a sinner who repents. It means that there's activity in the heavens that's going on that corresponds to activity that is here on earth, to events that are here on earth. Uh, the angels of God that we don't see, but they're literally rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And so a lot of times we don't really have eyes to see what is going on in the unseen realm. We're not given that gift. Um, but it is every bit as real as what we see in front of our eyes today. It's every bit as real, right? There's a certain, um, there's this unseen realm that we're not given access to that when we read different passages of the Old Testament, we don't really see them. We're like, we don't really focus on, um, okay, so we kind of like jump over that part of scripture, like, okay, that's not, it's a little too weird for me, so I'm just gonna skip it, okay? So leading up to it, leading up to the few of the passages I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go into the book of Job, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Daniel, that's gonna talk about what's going on in the heavenly realms that a lot of times it's a little bit too weird for us, so we skip over, but it's every bit as real as the flesh and blood that we are today and the, and the events that we're watching unfold in the earth. A quick recap, we talked about in the book of Genesis, the fall of man, and then the flood came because God punished the earth. And then after the flood account, we talked about the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, one of those passages you quickly skim past, these 70 nations that emerged from the lineage of Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And all these rebellious nations, they gathered, they disobeyed God, they pursued idols, pagan deities. So in Genesis chapter 11, he scattered, 
he scattered these increasingly idolatrous nations at Babel. And it's from these 70 nations that the peoples of the earth were populated. So that's all the way through Genesis 11. Then Genesis chapter 12, we get to Abraham. We talk about how God called him as a specific family from the line of Shem, through whom all these nations that were just talked about in Genesis 10 and 11, through whom all these nations will be blessed. So we have all these 70 nations. He chose Abraham as one nation through whom a blessing would come. We're not given a lot of insight at the beginning of Genesis into who that is or what that is, but God gives a promise that he's going to bless all these nations that he just scattered. And so then we, we read about his son Isaac and then his son Jacob, who I preached about last time, uh, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's staircase. It was basically an image that ultimately was fulfilled in Christ that God himself would build a bridge back to man. This, the stuff that is in the heavens, the unseen, God himself is going to be building a bridge to man, and that was in Jesus himself. So that's the insight that was given to, given to Jacob. So let's take this a little bit deeper then and just talk about some of the things that are in plain sight in Scripture that we don't want to talk, talk about too much. So I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 through 9. Okay. I'm going to reshare. And there we go. Okay. All right. Let's read it. So it says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations, there's that word, their inheritance, when he divided mankind, this is, once again, this happened in Genesis 11, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God that the Lord's portion is his people, okay? Jacob, his allotted heritage. So this is what I was just describing. All these, you have all these nations that rebelled. God divided mankind, verse eight. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And that's the thing we kind of skip over. But then the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay, so the question is, who are these sons of God that he's talking about? Um, that's kind of a weird. That's kind of a weird thing to, you know, the sons of God are these like divine beings? Well, the answer is yes. These are divine beings, but they're not God Himself, the Big G, right? They're, they're not Yahweh, the omnipotent, omnipresent, all-knowing One, but they are immaterial divine beings that are part of God's created order. And so, some of these divine beings are referred to as sons of God. And, but we know, we talk about them today as rebellious spirits that we know of as demons or false gods that want to have the authority of God himself. And we know that these beings existed, that God created them, and they rebelled before man ever, ever rebelled. But we read about their activities in the Old Testament. Um, they set up, they set up sacrificial systems. They demanded worship. We read about Baal and Molech and Asherah and Marduk these things that the Bible calls false gods. But back in Deuteronomy 32, we're seeing that there are these beings called sons of God that it seems like God assigned to the rebellious nations. So basically in man's rebellion, God gave them over to their wickedness and he gave authority to these divine beings to be over these pagan nations, all within his sovereignty, that bitter sovereignty, right? Like he allowed this to happen. You know, we read in Romans 1 about how God turned man over to his wickedness, right? So it's not a new concept. 
And yet God chose one family for himself. So that verse nine, the Lord's portion is his people to take up his allotted heritage. So, so you could be like, what the heck? What are you saying? That there's other gods? Uh, yes and no. There are other divine beings, but there's only one God. I just want to make sure that it's very clear. The uncreated creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. But what do we do now? There was a divine rebellion that happened before man was created. How do we know that? Well, there was a tempter that was in the garden who wasn't God, but he already was working against the purpose of God. And so when we read Genesis 3 about who is this tempter, when you read the translation from the Hebrew, it's translated as the serpent. And he was the one that was tempting Eve and then Adam, and then ultimately sin entered into humanity, that first act of human rebellion. But clearly there was a spiritual rebellion that happened prior to this because there's at least this one being that is trying to tempt Adam and Eve to go against God, to rebel along with him. So let's focus on who that was for a second. Uh, we, it's translated as a serpent, but it wasn't a snake as, as often portrayed in um, like our medieval paintings. The snake didn't have vocal cords and, and speak to Adam and Eve. The, the Hebrew term that's used there in Genesis 3 is nakash, which means serpent, but it also can be translated as shining one. And in the ancient Near Eastern context, the literature of the shining ones are serpentine in nature, but they're adorned with a shining exterior. It's in a lot of different Hebrew literature that has been uh, and uh, ancient Near Eastern literature that from the Ugaritic, and I won't go into all that, but basically outside of the Bible and the Old Testament, these nachash were referred to. And remember when we get into the Bible, we talk about Lucifer, the angel of light, the one of beauty, right? So this is a beautiful being. This is not a snake. It's a beautiful being of some sort that had manifestation, physical manifestation, at least to, be, to the point of being able to approach the physical Adam and Eve and ultimately tempt them. So we know there's at least one divine being that's in rebellion against God, and we have no problem acknowledging that divine beings exist, right? We call them angels. We speak about different these different uh, angels. They have different categories, different job functions. They're heralds that perform certain tasks for God and God's people. Um, there's different kinds of angels. There's cherubim and there's seraphim, um, but they have different job functions. Um, but there's, a, a, there's um, a couple more passages that make it a little even weirder that we're going to go into. So let's go into uh, Job chapter 1, 6 through 12, just to start here. So uh, verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to read them, but Job is basically talked about as a righteous man. He has many flocks. He's, he's, a, he's a wealthy man, but he's very righteous. Um, but then in verse 6, it gets kind of weird. He says, now there was a day when the sons of God, same term, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan, the term is Satan, which basically means the adversary. Right? The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job no, fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and behold, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So at the very end, he said, behold, all that he has, his possessions, 
are yours to go basically take them and let's see if let's see if job remains righteous so that's kind of uncomfortable right it's like so satan has and the sons of god they go into the throne room of god and they present themselves so they're somehow accountable to the lord even though they've rebelled against him so some, we see god's sovereignty even though these people are these people <laughs> these uh demonic beings are rebellious they still have to present themselves to him at least in this book of job and god actually allows them to buffet his servant that can make us feel uncomfortable right um if you go to this uh chapter two i'm not going to read through all of it but basically after job after job remains righteous and does not curse god then satan does the same thing he goes back in the throne room of god and he says you know what okay well, let me make him suffer physically right and the lord gave him over to actually let him uh cause him to suffer and you know behold he's in your hand only spare his life so you can do everything but you can't kill him so wow that's we don't talk about that a lot the fact that god actually in his sovereignty is allowing um this rebellious being to for his own purposes to buffet job that uh now, what I will say is that may make us feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, hasn't the world been so much of a better place with the fact that God actually allowed that to happen? For thousands and thousands of years, we've read about the righteousness of Job enduring despite suffering. So the big picture here is there's divine activity that's going on in the heavens, all under God's sovereign hand that we don't get a chance to see, but it also has real implications on what happens on earth to his people. So that's a little weird and uncomfortable. But let's uh, put another stone in your shoe. Let's go to Ezekiel ch chapter 28. I'm gonna read it in, in whole because I think it's important to understand the whole context. So the Ezekiel prophet in Israel says, the word of the Lord came to me. He says, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, prince, just focus on that. The prince of Tyre, so this is a human being and we'll see why. It says, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat, the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secrets hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth okay therefore thus says the lord god because you make your heart like the heart of a god therefore behold i will bring foreigners upon you the most ruthless of the nations they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor they shall thrust you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas will you still say i'm a god in the presence of those who kill you though you were but a man and no god in the hands of those who slay you you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So what's going on here? So clearly the prince of Tyre, he's clearly a man. He's under the judgment of God. He's a man, not a God, though he, he's basically boasting and very self-aggrandizing. And we see what happens to him. In fact, uh, this prophecy came true. The prince of Tyre uh, was removed when Babylon came and actually conquered Tyre. Um, but so it, it gets kind of strange next because... Ezekiel 28 picks up at verse 11. So there's another dude. This guy, this guy is different than the Prince of Tyre. 
says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So we have the prince and we have the king. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. You're crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Okay, on the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. So this, well, this king of Tyre, very beautiful, shining, right? And he was anointed. He actually was a guardian cherub. He was placed in the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Okay? In abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. You sinned. You cast a profane thing on the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Okay? And it goes on. So the point is, there's this prince of Tyre, and there's the king of Tyre. The prince of Tyre rebels against God. He sets himself up like, I'm like a God. And he is basically cast from all of his authority. He's punished. But then in the same chapter, right afterwards, he talks about this king of Tyre, who obviously existed before the prince did. He was there in the Garden of Eden himself. And he was adorned with these jewels. He was beautiful, and yet he rebelled. And Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel, is saying that there's a correlation between the activities and the haughtiness of this prince and basically almost his patron deity, this king of Tyre. And so we see what happens in the heavens has a direct correlation with what's happening here on earth. That's something really to soak on and marinate. That there's stuff going on in the heavenlies that we don't see, that, that is every bit as real, and it has a direct correlation with what is happening here. Okay. So say, okay, well, so wait a minute. Those are two weird passages. We can skip over those. Let's, let's just go to one other one, and then we'll bring it into the New Testament, bring it home. So Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 21. I forgive, forgive me for reading through all this stuff, but I think it's important. He says, so this is Daniel. He's having a vision. He said that he said to be, fear not, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before the God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So there's some kind of heavenly battle going on. There's the guy that's speaking to Daniel, being withstood by the prince of Persia, delayed him by 21 days, and then Michael came to help out, right? Um, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and they opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me. I have no breath left in me. Again, one ha having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me, and I was strengthened. Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. <laughs> But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth, that there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael. Okay, so what do we know here? So there's 
is this a vision? This okay? We're talking about this prince of Persia detaining the guy given the vision. Michael comes. We see that Michael actually is the guardian um, you know, divine being assigned to the nation of Israel. So he comes and he basically tips the scales in this battle. But what do we know from history that happened after this prophecy? So remember, Daniel's in Babylon, a captive of Nebuchadnezzar. So he speaks in Daniel chapter 8. I'm not going to read it, but he speaks about the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks and then a powerful kingdom that was going to be coming that would defeat the Greeks that we know ultimately is the Roman Empire. And it's during the Roman Empire that the Messiah would come. So zoom out. Big picture, there's a war going on in the heavens under the sovereign hand of God Almighty, and it somehow corresponds to what's happening or will happen here on Earth. Okay. And there's other passages we can go into that I'm, I'm not going to for the sake of time, but Isaiah 14 speaks about the king of Babylon, which actually is this kind of divine heavenly being, but it relates to the fall of Satan. So just let's just recap where, where, we, where we've been, and then we're going to go quickly into the New Testament, kind of wrap it, wrap it all together. What do we know so far? That God scattered the nations. He assigned the 70 nations under these sons of God, basically hands human beings over them in the rebellion under these rebellious divine beings. But we do know that God chose one nation for himself through the line of Abraham, ultimately, and his grandson Jacob renamed Israel, that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so these rebellious beings, they commanded idolatrous worship. And we do know that there's a correlation between what happens on earth and what happens in heaven. But we also know that these divine beings are under God's sovereign hand and ultimately are going to be facing final judgment. So we're going to go into the New Testament before I read the passage. Sometimes when we read the New Testament, you almost read it like it's a travelogue of Jesus's life. It's like he went here and he did this, he went here and he did this. And a lot of times we lose uh, insight into the radical nature of actually what's being, what's going on, what's being communicated. So this, the son of God, Jesus himself comes and he, he's the one that's connected heaven and earth himself. What is he proclaiming at the beginning of his ministry? The kingdom of God is at hand. So he's claiming to be the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So all are going to come under his authority. And the imagery is, that is used is unbelievably parallel to the Old Testament. So Jesus chooses 12 disciples as his inner circle, mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel. During his ministry, he sends out 70 in pairs of his followers to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God, just like the 70 nations. Some manuscripts say 70, some say 72, but the textual critics are split. But the point is, it clearly mirrors the 70 nations that God scattered. Now God is going to be assembling into his kingdom. He's, he is declaring his, his sovereign right over the peoples of the earth. Okay. And remember what happened when the disciples all went out? They were astounded. They were, they were overjoyed at the fact that even the demons obeyed them. In Luke chapter 10, these demons, these fallen beings, are going to have to submit to the ultimate victory, the authority of God. So that's what's going on. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God's at hand. And so when we go to the New Testament, we read about that Paul gives us a little bit of insight here, Ephesians chapter or three, verse six, he says, this mystery that's through the gospel, the Gentiles, the people outside the nation of Israel, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers and together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So this was radical, right? The fact that 
Israel had its own national identity. They had forgotten about God's great promise through Abraham, and they were just focused on their national identity and for, they had lost their missionary spirit, that the fact that through them, the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this great mystery that was just shrouded, it's like, wait a minute, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. That was a radical thing to say to the, to the Jews of that day. Okay. So I'm gonna read one more passage and put it in, in context here. And when I talked about the travelogue of, okay, Jesus went here, he went there. When we make it to the Gospel of Matthew, in verse 16, where Jesus and his followers go up to Caesarea Philippi, where we read it and we're like, okay, that's some ancient place so that Jesus went, kind of random. Well, the readers at the time would have known that, that Caesarea Philippi was at the base of Mount Hermon okay, in the north of Judea. And this is the place that in the Hebrew context and the ancient Near Eastern literature, this was considered the place of the gathering of the rebellious gods, the rebellious demons. They would come together and assemble at Mount Hermon. It's in the Ugaritic literature. It's, it's, there's a lot of uh, interesting Old Testament passages when you read through and you're like, oh, that's what's going on there. So Mount Hermon actually is a place that was the place of the gods, but God himself was going to come and take authority over. Um, and just one more interesting thing about Caesarea Philippi, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, this town is actually referred to as Panaeus, and it was named after Pan, the, the goat demon. So there's, and the things that would happen there, the despicable acts of sacrifice, I won't even speak about on the, on the Zoom call here, but th that would happen within their sacrificial system. So basically this is like the red light district, like the demonic hub of uh of judea so when so in that context let's read matthew 16 it says now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is and they said some say john the baptist others say elijah others say jeremiah one of the prophets he said to them but who do you say that i am simon peter replied you are the christ the messiah right the son of the living god and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on Hermon, <laughs> I will build my church, and the gates of hell, which is right there, right? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and what you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one. So... What's happening here? So Jesus goes to the enemy camp and basically says, I'm here. He's, he's proclaiming his victory that's going to ultimately be fulfilled through his own death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so he's just basically taking it to them. And it talks about the gates of hell, which are like a defensive mechanism. They're not going to be able to withstand the fact that this kingdom will, will be extended throughout the whole earth. You know, so when we read like Ephesians 6, the battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, it gives it even more texture when we read that now. So, And so ultimately the Messiah had come through his own body. He was going to be that final sacrifice. There would be no more need of a sacrificial system. And now we are all under his ultimate kingship. The kingdom will go out to all the, the nations and so when he gives us our great commission to go into all the earth, proclaiming and making disciples of all nations, and that every knee will bow, every, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, this is happening through the establishment of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel to the, to the, to the nations 
and so it's a it's a nation that's not built through swords or bullets and extended extending the kingdom that way but by the preaching the good news the rec reconciliation so so zooming back out when i read these parts of scripture you know you, you learn about like god's sovereign hand though there's a bitter providence of what we endure and what we see with our eyes here on earth and what we endure and suffer right but there's a master plan that god has and that we get to be part of that and though you know this life has momentary affliction like Paul talked about in the unseen realm these incredible things are happening behind the scenes and the victory's already been won through our Savior Jesus and so I just pray that we have eyes to see that and uh, despite all the stuff going on with coronavirus and all the kind of economic shutdown and all the hardship that is creating which is very very real I just pray that we'd be obedient followers um, of Jesus have a heavenly vision the vision of the kingdom and that we would act in accordance with that in the heart of gratitude. So I can just ask you guys to pray with me just as we, we finish off here. And so Lord, I just would ask that you give us hearts of gratitude and eyes to see the world the way that you see it and a kingdom focus and one that is not focused on ourselves, setting us, ourselves up as our own mini gods. We, we just submit to your eternal kingship, your eternal lordship, and that we would proclaim the gospel not only through our actions, but through our words and our very lives. And that, um, and thank you for the privilege of calling us in your family and letting us sit at, sit in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, your son. Amen.